Hello and welcome to Hellers for Hyphenates for June 2017. I am writer, hyphen, Han Solo, fill-in director, Lee Zachariah, and with me as always is... Curator, hyphen, mole woman, Sophie Mayer. Glad to know it's June and really thrilled that we have with us as uh, our guest this month... Uh, I am C. Robert Cargill. I am a screenwriter, hyphen, novelist, hyphen, former film critic. Oh, a person with proper jobs. This is awesome. Well, actually, uh, oddly enough, me and Lee actually used to write for the same site, oh, a decade ago. Yep. And that's how we know one another. And what more can you tell us about <laughs> the Lee of a decade ago? <laughs> Well, this was this was uh, we were both uh, cool news writers. He was doing AICN Down Under, mm-hmm. and I started out as AICN Indie Indie, and I was covering the indie indie beat of just undistributed indie films. And he would cover everything that was going on down in uh, Australia and New Zealand, uh, and we slowly got to know each other over the years. We did, and one one of us went on to bigger and better things. It doesn't matter who, it doesn't matter who went on to bigger and better things, but the important thing is that between us, you know, there's been a lot of success if you sort of, you know, put us in a blender and and don't look too closely. Well, I mean, and and I I envy all your success, Lee. (laughs) Oh, thank you, thank you. And I just... I, I'm glad you don't rub it in my rub my nose in it. That's just all that matters. Well, yeah, I mean that's that's just what comes with all all, all my uh, incredible uh, screenwriting and, and novelistic success. Uh, is this is this humility and uh, and I don't know how long I can keep this up for. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about some movies. <laughs> Let's well. Now, here's the thing. Some long-time listeners, if we have any, may recall that it's been five years ago to the day since Cargo was last on the show, and. We have this rule on Hyphenates where in our reviews section, in which we generally only cover a handful of films from the previous month, we always give preference to works made by filmmakers whose filmography we've covered on the show before. So five years ago, one C. Robert Cargill decided to talk about Michael Bay forever cursing us to watch films I may have otherwise avoided. I was... I was literally planning to break the rule this month because I didn't think I could handle another Transformers movie. Um, but when all the stars aligned, I realized it was five years. You were coming back. You were on the Transformers show. I, I, and I, I did it. I had to, I had to do it. I, I went along and, uh, and, uh, and I broke my rule and I, I watched the new Transformers film. So, so thank you. Thank you. The, uh, five years on, you're still having a huge effect on, uh, on my soul. I had no idea that that was one of the rules, so I didn't know that by picking Michael Bay, I was damning you guys to having to endure what became of him over the last five years. I just picked because you were like, we, we want you to talk about a filmmaker. Pick, pick out a filmmaker that means something to you and, and defend their career. And I was like, you know what? I'm the guy who at the time was defending Michael Bay. So I was like, you know what? Let's do this. And I had no idea that from that point on, you would have to see the various oeuvre of, uh, uh, of mid-career Michael Bay. And I want to say that I, for one, am super grateful that this rule exists because it led me to see the new Transformers film, which is the most accurate shock docufiction about contemporary life in the UK that could be imagined. (laughs) I don't understand how this first-time director just using fan supercuts of previous Transformer (laughs) films on YouTube was able to make a film that accurately reflects our life in contemporary Britain, where cars do indeed turn into murderous weapons that kill 
innocent passers-by. And I thought it did obviously come up against some libel problems, so they could not have the Maybot leading the Decepticons, which obviously she does in real life. And I did I think that... called the DUP. <laughs> exactly. And I did think that Mark Wahlberg was not really handsome enough casting for Jeremy Corbyn. So... You know, mm. coming up against the limitations of being a first time, like obviously a very young, inexperienced director, very low budget, in no way could this film have paid to reclad Grenfell Tower, producing a very accurate depiction of the utter confusion, insanity and meaninglessness of life in contemporary Britain, really up there with sort of Adam Curtis's work or Julian Temple's. But I do want to introduce the film equivalent of Godwin's Law, which is that whenever anyone cites Arthur and the Merlin cycle, they immediately have to go and sit in the corner. <laughs> that's, that's a much better reading than the one I had, uh, which was just me crying for two and a half hours. Cargill, did you did you catch this one? This I did not. It uh, it just came out this weekend, and I was actually packed all weekend. And it's it. it I have to actually. I can't not. Watch Is your hair so clean right now? <laughs> no, I actually swear to God, I uh, I had a very busy weekend. Me and my wife might be buying a new house, and we think we found the house, and that led to everything that happens when you consider to buy a house. And all of a sudden, I was like, "Oh, it's Monday," and I get this email going, "Hey, it's me, Lee. I hope you're ready to do this thing in 24 hours." And I was like, "It's Monday already. Oh dear God." <laughs> so yeah, I, uh, I I feel really bad that I missed this, having done this to you guys. Yeah, I'm not feeling a lot of love right now. Uh, that's but no, that's that's fair enough. You know, you got You got to buy a house, even if it does transform into, I don't know, um, evil. I don't know. I, I want to reference something that happened in this film, but I have absolutely no idea what happened because it is just. <laughs> I've never seen anything, and I'm including other Michael Bay films here when I say this, I've never seen anything so deeply incoherent before. I mean, uh, you know, I acknowledge the auteurism involved. You can tell from a shot, from an edit that you're watching a Michael Bay film. It is distinctive. <laughs> it is authorial. No arguments there. But there is no action scene, no line of dialogue, no characterization that resembles a human. Nothing, nothing makes sense from beat to beat. It's like it's it's honestly like a jumble, like they've taken human characteristics and jumbled and pulled them out at random. You know, not a single joke sounds like anything resembling Earth humor that I'm familiar with. I I just, I could not believe what I was, I've been, I've watched all four of these films, some of them more than once, and I still have no idea what I just watched. I've never seen anything quite like this. I'm curious which ones you've seen more than once out of curiosity. Uh, well, about five years ago, I decided to re-watch them because uh, I had to talk about his films. So at least the first three, I think, or the first two. I don't think I'd seen the third one uh, more than once. So, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that, that's, that's what my life has become. And, 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 and all throughout the film... Uh, I was yearning for a film which up until that moment had been my worst film of 2017. Uh, and I was, I was missing it. I was missing The Mummy. Oh, no. <laughs> yes. Ouch. That's because, uh, you know, the, the mild coherence and, uh, a, and connective tissue that that film had, even though it didn't really... So this is the, uh, the first film in the Universal Dark Universe Cinematic Universe. Uh, and it 
focuses... I really was looking forward to saying that sentence, and I think it went as well as it could have done. Um, it focuses on the mummy instead of Frankenstein, uh, which is really strange to me, given this film feels like it's been stitched together from the corpses of other terrible films. It's uh, and, and had it been a Frankenstein film, I would have been praising it for that brilliance of... Yeah, it is. It doesn't go together. It's a monster. Have you guys seen this film, the, the Tom Cruise versus and is the mummy? So I have seen The Mummy, although its correct title in Arabic is The Night of Counting the Years, but in English it is known as The Mummy. Um, It was restored about five years ago by Martin Scorsese, and it's one of the first big-budget features made by an Egyptian director in Egypt, and it's an exquisite film about colonialism, so I have no idea what you're talking about, and I think we both went to the wrong cinema. I, I like the sound of your one. Yeah, I highly recommend El Mumia. It has one of the most beautiful heist sequences uh, ever shot, and Scorsese did a fantastic job, uh, obviously not personally with this restoration, but finding the film and ensuring it could be seen. So if you, Lee, it sounds like, you know, Transformers has helped you recover from the trauma somewhat. A little. Um, but if you, if you need a full sort of spa treatment for the mind... Do uh, do check out the the original and the best. It uh, sounds good, uh, Cargill. Did you did you catch either of the the various mummies that we've been talking about? I caught neither of the mummies. Uh, I am just now learning about this new mummy that sounds fantastic. <laughs> uh, and then everyone I know that saw the one that you saw said things similar to what you said, Lee, mm. and cautioned me very heavily. Uh, and that weekend, I did have very clean hair. So, uh... <laughs> As does Tom Cruise. Yes, yeah. suspiciously clean hair. Well, let me just say, because there's so much has been written about what went wrong with this film. So let me say one thing in its, in its defence. There was one thing from the trailers that I thought... I was going to hate. It was the one I thought because I thought there was a chance this film could be could be good, but there was one thing I was convinced I was going to hate, and it ended up being the only thing in the film I ended up liking, and that is Hyde, the characterization of Hyde. You know, Russell Crowe cameos as uh, as you know Doctor Jekyll slash Mister Hyde, and uh, he's in charge of the Prodigium, a, a group that's. I can't even... Uh, the less said about that, the better, but that's meant to be the connective tissue between all of these uh, franchises that are coming up, the Draculas and the Frankensteins and so on. And I thought they were going to go the way that they always go. Hollywood always treats Hyde. They do the Van Helsing League of Extraordinary Gentlemen thing of turning him into the Incredible Hulk. And I was prepared to rant about how they'd completely missed the point. But the thing is, they got it, or at least came closer than no film I've seen in a long time, Crow's Hyde is a menacing version of his Jekyll. Physically similar, different voice. I'm not entirely sold by it, but the thing that they're trying to sell isn't terrible, and it was and it ended up being the only thing I, I liked in the film. Uh, so that was that was a real surprise for me, and I wanted to give it props for that one element of non nonsense. Wow, Transformers really has transformed the take <laughs> on the mummy. <laughs> The one thing I have to say about The Mummy that I'm glad it exists is somebody, whether accidentally or whether accidentally, air quotes, uploaded that trailer without the music. Did oh, you yeah. guys see see this? Yeah. So it's just the sound effects. And it becomes so ludicrous and so hilarious that <laughs> I watched it for a solid hour drinking <laughs> and crying with laughter at just the, because it's, you know, when you're, when you're doing sound mix, 
just sounds that you mix into sound alone typically don't sound natural. Mm. They sound right when you've got music playing, when you've got other sounds going on, when you've got dialogue. But in order to get it to sound right in a theater or you know, uh, in the mix, sometimes it needs to be pronounced. But when you remove that music, it really exposes how <laughs> ridiculous some of that is. And this thing, if you can find the Mummy trailer without music, it will. It's it's howlingly hilarious. It is it is probably the funniest thing I've seen all year. Yeah, we'll pop a link in the show notes. I for one am glad that the Mummy, that Mummy, the Tom Cruise one, is being recognized as an avant-garde classic because one of my favorite takes on wonder woman Mm -hmm. which is our third film for this month is dara birnbaum's um video art piece wonder woman technology transformation which is one of the first uh pieces of video art to use a sample and just consists of wonder woman twirling around in front of the mirror and transforming repeated over and over again with a, a tiny clip of sound so wonder woman repeated and repeated to kind of explore the, you know these new electronic effects and the, the ridiculousness of superheroes but also their fascination so I love the idea that it's sort of come full circle and now YouTube art is producing these kind of avant-garde takes on uh, on Hollywood blockbusters and I certainly could have done with a much shorter version of the Wonder Woman film and I'm <laughs> burning my feminist bra as I say this and changing my dress because I'm aware that literally everyone in the world apart from me loved this film and I clearly have a whatever some kind of deficit that caused me to be surprised when the DCP was switched after the first act and instead I was watching Steve Trevor mansplains it all um a film I did not know that needed to exist. Having seen the Black Panther trailer, I feel like there was more female solidarity in that. So I have hope there is a decent superhero film coming out that will speak to me, but Wonder Woman was not it. Discuss. Wow. And I can say that, obviously, because I'm a woman and a feminist, so you guys are screwed. (laughs) (laughs) No, so here's, here's the thing with Wonder Woman. I really like it. I enjoyed it quite a bit. What problems I do have with the film, you just laid out. Somebody else referenced it earlier, but I couldn't help but notice it while I was watching the film because I had had, you know, so many people just glowing about it. And they're like, this is, you know, finally a great feminist superhero movie, which is something we've needed. And I sat down to watch it. And then it was the born sexy yesterday trope. And yeah, and and the film is in, in the first segment of the film, everything on the island is just really great. And then they have this really weird scene on the boat that is <sighs> everything wrong with how women are presented in in genre uh, in that one scene. And it really it was it was really weird because the rest of the movie is usually pretty good about it, but this one scene is then referenced a couple of times in the movie and it's just the one part that really lacks about this film because if you've not seen the video uh essay uh on born sexy yesterday i highly recommend it it ties together and explains a trope that didn't have a name but very much existed in the way women are presented in genre films and this really plays into that and it was i couldn't help but you know feel like man i really enjoyed this movie but i really wish it had been written by a woman 
And yeah. but there are there's so much great in it. Like this, one of my favorite hero moments of all time is in this movie when Wonder Woman goes to fight. Uh, uh, she's fighting a tank. And, you know, everybody talks about this scene where she's in no man's land and starts running across. And that's really good. But once she gets across no man's land and hits the tank and for the first time she realizes just how strong she is. And then for the first moment, she really becomes Wonder Woman. It is such a great moment and it just fills you with so much joy and it then leads to a number of just really great sequences where you're just like, yes, this is everything I wanted out of a Wonder Woman movie. But yeah, no, I, the, the thing about Steve Trevor is I've, ne- I've never liked Steve Trevor, and I'm kind of glad they got the Steve Trevor story out of the way as part of her backstory so we don't need more Steve Trevor going forward, that we can really just tell Wonder Woman stories. Yeah. I Look, it, it's weird because I agree with everything you've both said, and yet I enjoyed the film a lot, and, and I... You know, I am on the record as having sworn off DC films forever. A year ago, Batman vs. Superman made me not want to watch any more DC films, or actually films in general, anymore. I was that <laughs> upset. And I, I went along to this, with, uh, and, and the odds were stacked against it. And I think it's that that thing where you, you're watching a film and enjoying it so much that the flaws that would normally derail a film for you you're aware of them but you don't care about them because you're having such a good time and that was how how i felt watching this it was that it was that thing where you know unlike watching a batman film or a superman film you know with there have been so many of them that they're fall, falling over themselves to define themselves away from what every previous iteration has done there hasn't been a big screen wonder woman like this before and so it's embracing what it can be and it's not burdened by a million other versions and it's it's that energy that comes from finally we're seeing this thing that everyone's waited so long for and I, I think the 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 feeling I got from that, you know, I was swept along with the rah rahness of it, uh, and was willing to overlook the things that, that that bothered me about it, which they did exist, but they there weren't as many as I thought there would be. There it wasn't hobbled by the usual flaws I find in these films. The I guess the bleakness, the overwillingness to be serious. The, there was a joy in this film that 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 I, I really tapped into and yeah I, I think there's a there's a lot to be said for the overwhelming odds that w- was facing this film and facing director Patty Jenkins who wasn't just tasked with the unfair burden of you know every female superhero is riding on this film for some reason and also everyone hated the last three films so you'd better make this good and also uh you know warner brothers may go bankrupt if it's not good so no pressure just make the most successful film of all time and you know she pretty much did i think it's it's an extraordinary feat uh and uh and i'm kind of babbling now but you get the idea i was excited i had a good time i do i just want to end by giving a shout out to one of my absolute favourite actors um, for popping up uh, in this film uh, and the hope that his role might be expanded in future films or if not maybe Cargill you could write a role for him which is Saeed Tahmawi who I first saw in uh, Hideous Kinky but most people will know from Three Kings um, and he recently popped up in a fantastic British film called My Brother the Devil and he's here as one of uh, Steve Trevor's far more interesting and I would say good looking sidekicks uh, speaking multiple languages 
languages, uh, slightly cast in the Peter Sellers comedy brown person role towards the end, but still uh, nailing it, um, beautifully kind performance. And um, I would love to see more of him. He, he's actually been on my radar for a while. I, I had a role in mind for him in a, uh, Scott and I worked on a, a script that Scott was going to direct several years ago uh, called When Gravity Fails. Uh, which is uh, based on George Effinger's 1989 cyberpunk novel, which is set in the Middle East, and it's got a mostly Arab cast. And he was he was one of those actors that I was like, I'm writing a role for this guy. He, nice. I was I was really happy to see him pop up as well. He was fantastic yeah. in the movie. He's given very he's given very little to do, but what yeah. he does, he does great. Cinematic universes are all the rage, so much so that this isn't the first or even second time we've devoted a middle topic to the phenomenon that is consuming Hollywood like Langoliers. Uh, an upcoming TV show, Castle Rock, will mix together the worlds of numerous Stephen King books that already take place within the same universe on the page. Sony is developing a parallel Spider-Man universe franchise to run alongside the Spider-Man they've given to Marvel, sort of. And as we record this, a rumour has just come out that Eon is considering a James Bond show shared universe. This month, we reviewed Wonder Woman, which is the latest in the DC extended universe, The Mummy, which is designed to kick off an interconnected series of monster movies, and Transformers, which currently has a writer's room developing multiple sequels and spin-offs. On top of that, we are joined this month, as you know, by the co-writer of Doctor Strange, which was the 14th film in the Marvel Studios series. Marvel is, to date, the only franchise that has clearly enjoyed success from this model and as everyone attempts to ape them i have to ask how would you do it how would you pitch an interconnected universe to a franchise hungry studio in this day and age not an easy thing to do go for it well i mean it's the the thing is is that the key is to for to pitch to a studio uh, you know, the studios are really hungry for IP right now. Everybody wants uh, intellectual properties. They want recognizable IPs. And the, the, the reason cinematic universes are so attractive right now is it allows you to tell fresh original stories that aren't just sequels, but to do it in a way that is technically a sequel. Which is, you know, what we got to do with Doctor Strange, where, you you know, we're, we made the 14th Marvel movie, but for the most part, it is its own separate film. In fact, while we were writing it, we were instructed not to reference anything in, in our development drafts uh, of the Marvel Universe. They wanted it to be something that was its own thing. And then there were a few small references peppered in to the film over the course of making it to reward the audiences for paying attention. Uh, but all in all, uh, uh, how I would go about pitching a new one would be to uh, pitch a couple of great stories that are the type of stories that uh, you couldn't ordinarily get an audience to go see, but that they'll go see as a result of already being invested in the franchise and in the in the cinematic universe. And I think that's what's really attractive to studios about that is because every person I've ever met in the system at all 
wants to make great movies. They want to tell original stories. Everyone thinks Hollywood is easy and simple and uh, doesn't want to make anything new, that they just don't have any good ideas. They have nothing but good ideas. They just don't know how to sell them. And cinematic universes are the new way that you can sell new content that people have never seen before. But by having a couple characters walk in, it's like, oh, it's that guy. Uh, you know, you uh, we were talking about Black Panther just a short while ago. And the interesting thing about Black Panther is so many people freaked out when they saw these two characters that were small side characters in pre- previous Marvel films. And already they're like, oh, it's those guys. <laughs> oh, man, I can't wait to see this. And it's like literally we're talking about a villain who had four minutes of screen time in Age of Ultron and then a side character who had like three minutes of screen time in Civil War. But everyone gets all excited because they're like, ah, this is the next chapter in this great big story and they're getting invested in a character that they know very little about uh because uh okay this is the universe that i love and i love this brand and i love the the level of quality they bring so i'm invested in a character that i've seen in a small portion of a previous film I think with Black Panther and Wonder Woman, there's two things going on. There's both the the franchise juggernaut, which just um, last summer with Batman versus Superman or, you know, boredom versus stupidity, people were saying it's done, it's over, the franchise has crashed and burned. Um, and Doctor Strange was like, you know, seen as the one bright spot um, for the studio franchises because it did something new. It was more cerebral. And Black Panther and Wonder Woman are very much not just uh, renewals of the franchise with new characters, but they're also Hollywood's attempt to address the question of diversity and audience diversity. So people are not just saying, oh, I'm excited to see Black Panther having, you know, four seconds of screen time, which were the only four seconds I was awake in Captain America, whatever stupid subtitle that was meaningless they gave it. But that this is a character... I've been invested in imagining whether it's because you were a fan of the comics or because you just thought surely we could have a black male lead in a large budget Hollywood movie. It's like 2017. So they're they're filling um, niches, expectations that, you know, Cargill, as you say, people want to see those characters. And it's a way for studios who are nervous, the money people are nervous about introducing those kinds of characters. Franchises provide a kind of a framework or a soft landing to um, address those diversity questions. But the success of Get Out shows that you don't have to do it within a franchise. You can do it within uh, a genre, although, of course, the, the horror genre has a has many years of franchises uh, behind it. So it's interesting that when we say franchise, what we mean is is really the superhero film. You know, The Mummy is really a superhero film pretending to be a horror movie. So it's there's there's these two things. There's the superhero juggernaut, and then there's the attempt to address diversity and to address audiences who are really making themselves felt via social media and via box office with Wonder Woman and with the success of of Get Out. And I feel that the, for me, this really comes from television. Like another word for franchise is series. And this is cinema looking at the success of television, how television sustains audiences over seven, 15, 20 years and can play up, change things up with characters, do dream sequences, do reversals in time, and really trying to get in on some of that loyalty um, that comes with serial viewing. 
I think that that's probably true about the the TV, especially with with spin-offs, because spin-offs are essentially shared universes. But you, you mentioned Get Out, and it got me thinking that Cabin in the Woods, one of the things that was uh, such a, a thrill in that film uh, was the fact that it sort of suggested that all the slasher films of the last, you know, 30, 35 years are part of you know, have a point to them and, and are part of the same universe. You know, obviously we've seen Freddy versus Jason, but... but You've seen Freddy versus Jason. Well, yeah, that that's true. We as a collective uh, species, somebody has probably seen we, it. But <laughs> we have seen it. we have seen Freddy versus Jason. <laughs> not, only, not, only, not only Freddy versus Jason, but remember about 10, 12 years ago, there was a huge push to do this with everything. Yeah, Alien versus Predator. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, but they tried to get, like, Hellraiser versus... Oh, God, was it Chucky they tried to... Or Hellraiser versus Michael Myers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like, that, like, Hellraiser versus Halloween. Is like, uh, they tried to bring Ash in. Like, they literally started to try to cross all these various things together and get these movies made to capitalize on this kind of... IP juggling mm. and yeah, putting them all in the same shared universe was a really great gag in Cabin in the Woods. Yeah, and it seemed and, and it and it worked because you've got all of this history and and you know we understand the history as soon as they have the big reveals. We you know we've grown up on these films, so we know what what they're suggesting. And and I think there are you know I was saying this a bit with the the Alien Covenant review last month is that there are two reasons to do prequels, and I think this applies to shared universes as well. One is the universe itself is so interesting, you want to explore every facet of it, which is, I think, why the Star Wars prequel uh, or the spin-offs, the Rogue Ones, should work, because we want to see other corners of the universe. Or you, the characters are so interesting that you want to see them interact. It's the, you know, the, the, the Avengers model, is that you want to see the person from that film and that film meet. So it's universes and, and, and characters. And in trying to think of, you know, it's, it's why I think the, the Universal monster movies should theoretically work, even if they haven't got off to a good start. The Star Wars films should work because we love that universe. I don't know what else, aside from those established IPs. I don't know what else would work. You know, I started looking at novels and, and you know, I remember pa- uh, Patrick Bateman almost showed up in Rules of Attraction. They were trying to get Christian Bale to show up as, you know, Sean Bateman's brother. You know, really, And he, he refused. He did. He, he wasn't going to play. He wouldn't play the character again. Yeah, yeah. And, and and I think, you know, because that was there on the page, there was at least a precedent to maybe get him in there. Uh, you know, reading, you know, Nick Hornby books or Paul Torday books, you, you can see characters cross over into one another. And But it would sort of seem silly to do a, a bunch of drama, ser- uh, drama movies that all cross over. I don't think we're quite there yet. And it, this all, when I was thinking about this, it got, uh, I suddenly remembered a couple of years ago, I was working on an awful sketch show. I think I've mentioned on the show before. Uh, it was a comedy show. I got nothing on the air. Uh, and I wrote a sketch. One of the sketches was about how Australia could do a cinematic universe. And I was completely playing <laughs> to the middle Australian view of what Australian movies are, that we only ever make films about drug, act, drug addicts. And I showed it to the producers and they told me there was no chance it would ever get made. I thought it was pretty funny. And actually, it's not going to get made, so I might... If you go to the show notes, screw it, I'll put the PDF on there. You can download it and tell me it's not funny. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I, I realise that the uh, this is probably why they're, um, they're having... Everyone's chasing the shared universe idea so much is that they're actually a lot harder to do than they look, and you need 
something that's been in there from the beginning. You need, you know, the audiences know that the mummy and Dracula and Frankenstein could coexist because they have done in films before. They need to know that this comic universe is separate from that comic universe, that Star Wars, we've all grown up on it, so we want to see other facets of it. You know, if the Hobbit films had been um, critical successes, I think we would be seeing, you know, a whole bunch of more Tolkien books set in Middle Earth at various points. Oh, God, please don't threaten a Silmarillion <laughs> adaptation. <laughs> you know, I, I got to say, Sophie, you hit on something that I hadn't quite wrapped my head around and I think would be an awesome approach to this universal shared universe. The universal shared universe is, needs to be treated like superhero movies. Yeah. But from the other perspective. Like, right. this is... It, 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 what this needs to be is what if everything with superpowers in the world was dangerous and evil and regular people had to deal with it and 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 see it from that other way and kind of it in in a in a sense a deconstruction of the superhero film uh like treating treating you know the, the villains as uh, as these grand, larger-than-life things that, of course, can do whatever they want, and what are we going to do about it? And and I think that that would be an interesting tack to take with that. I would also mention you were talking about how weird it would be to have a cinematic universe that was a drama that technically exists. One of my favorite shared universes is... Oh, why am I blanking on his name all of a sudden? Uh, he uh, a, a, a crime writer who uh, wrote a number of big books, two of which were adapted, one by Quentin Tarantino and one by oh, Stephen Elmore Soder. Leonard. Elmore Leonard, yeah. Elmore Leonard. Elmore yeah. Leonard. So, of course, the universe is shared because you have Michael Keaton yes. playing Ray Nicolette in both movies. Of course. And he shows, yeah, he shows up and out of sight after having seen him in uh, Jackie Brown. And it is just so cool to see him show up like that. It's like, holy shit, it's Ray Nicolette. This is awesome. This is amazing. And that these two movies are in the same universe together, yeah. even though they do have, share some of the same actors playing different roles. Yeah, Samuel L. Jackson. But we, can, you know, I'm happy for a shared universe to have more than one Samuel L. Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm down with that. Yeah. So, uh, and of course, Quentin argues that certain of his movies are a shared universe all their own, mm. so that uh, uh, certain characters that Alabama Worley is the Alabama being mentioned in Reservoir Dogs, and Vic Vega is Vincent Vega, who's also mentioned in Reservoir Dogs, and that all these movies kind of live together in that same crime universe. Uh, so technically, that's a great extended universe. And of course, in the 90s, this was exactly what us hardcore movie nerds were doing, was trying to tie together all of Quentin's films with anything we could as this big <laughs> shared universe. Uh, and we loved it. And so, I mean, I certainly get why people are chasing after it right now and why it's a thing. Uh, I don't know. I, I was actually, uh, it's, it's interesting that we're talking about this because I was literally just an hour and a half ago on Twitter talking with Jordan Vote Roberts, who directed uh, uh, Kong Skull Island, and uh, Mark Millar, the comic writer. Uh, and we were all talking about cinematic universes. And Mark Millar has this very, very strong opinion that uh, uh, the era of the shared cinematic universe is coming to an end. 
that because we're getting more and more into global markets to drive uh, box office totals, that the further you get away from the origin of your cinematic universe, the more work someone has had to do to get invested, and people who have let, been left behind won't show up, and they'll just give up on your, your universe. I just had an insight based on exactly this point, Cargill, and also I was just thinking about American Gods. So... Shared cinematic universe is just another way of saying religion, right? We have a set of myths, we have a set of deities, we go and watch their all-powerful adventures, we break up into sects that debate, you know, DC versus Marvel. I'm sure the DC Marvel wars are literally coming. <laughs> um, and as as these religions travel and missionize, you have to interpret them syncretically to bring in new audiences so like i was pretty baffled by the explanation of the greek myths that happened in the first 15 minutes of wonder woman like what all the other gods died and zeus became a monotheistic hero but art wait okay so all of this idea of the shared cinematic universe goes back to the stories of of the gods whether it's the greek myths or the mabarata or the norse myths or like the crappy judeo-christian versions that have like no exciting gods in them the Bible never going to be your movie franchise basis, right? So it is this thing of like, this is our shared culture. And at the moment, they're the shared cultures of the people who grew up with DC and Marvel comics in like the 60s and 70s, who are now the studio heads and the screenwriters and the critics. So it's also a generational thing that if we look and see now, like Preacher has been adapted for TV, American Gods, it's a different generation of shared myths that is coming to the fore that will be also more global. And that actually makes me kind of excited. Like, I'm excited to see what's going to happen when that center of gravity moves away from the products of the big American companies and of that, like, very white American culture. Like, what is going to happen when the center of gravity shifts to China and to, um, you know, obviously there have already been martial arts franchises and It Man franchises and so on, but when they go global and we're the ones who have to learn the mythology and share that universe, it's going to be completely fascinating fascinating i probably just offended literally everyone on the planet you know you know what people hate when people on podcasts talk about interesting ideas that nobody's expressed before they hate that <laughs> people, <laughs> hate, people hate hearing new things they just want us to reiterate all the stuff they've heard before especially when it involves gods you know that's safe no it, it, you, you, your point is really really strong i mean this is something that uh 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 you know, being a, I'm a huge fan of foreign films, uh, and and it was something that I covered for a long time uh, when I was a critic. And there is a lot that you have to learn and process. Like you, like it, you can't just go and and jump into an Ip Man movie. You kind of have to know who Ip Man is. You have to know who Fong Sayuk is to understand one of the hundred movies he shows up in, or uh, Wong Fei Hong. Like you need to learn these cultural heroes who are every bit of cultural heroes as Superman is over here, or as I'm trying to think of some very real people because Feng Sayuk is, uh, I, I'm pretty certain, pure legend, but Wong Fei Hong's based on a real man uh, who has just been mythologized. Like, uh, so Ki King Arthur and Merlin, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, understanding the, the story of Feng Sayuk is like understanding Robin Hood or King Arthur. Like you just you already know that story, so they're just telling. Like it's it's like trying to watch the Merlin TV series without knowing Arthurian legend and being right. like. 
what the hell is going on and what is this? You just have no idea, but you, you, you have to know it. And so much of Hong Kong cinema is rooted in, in, in their cultural heroes. And so how is America going to wrap its head around folk heroes who they've never heard of before and and how will they make those heroes accessible to us or accessible to the rest of the english speaking world so yeah that's it's a very very interesting concept about how we're going to embrace that all right cargill please tell us whom have you picked for your hell's for hyphenates filmmaker of the month uh, I picked uh, my uh, spirit totem of a screenwriter, uh, somebody whose work I, I very much admire and whose uh, career I, I have somewhat modeled my own after, uh, uh, Australian screenwriter Everett DeRoche. Amazing. This is, uh, this is blowing my mind a little, partly because you didn't know this when you picked him, but DeRoche is one of the reasons that this show exists. I interviewed him on community TV in Australia just over a decade ago, and he was a great interviewee. The interview was a heap of fun, um, but he really sprang to life even more when we turned the cameras off and we were talking about the things he'd just watched or the things he'd enjoyed. And I thought, oh, God, people love the things they enjoy more than things they make. And that was like the idea for hyphenates. So the fact that you, you, you picked him is, uh, is, is a beautiful synchronicity, I have to say. For the totally uninitiated who are me... Can you, I, I can hear the excitement in both your voices, so just bring bring me up to speed. Who is Everett DeRoche? Okay, so here's the thing about Everett DeRoche. There is a period of filmmaking that is affectionately referred to as Ozploitation, in mm-hmm. which what essentially happened was a bunch of Australian filmmakers realized that if they hired British and American actors to come over and star in their films, and they left out a bunch of cultural eccentricities from the movies, they could trick UK and American audiences into thinking that these were films made in Hollywood or made in London studio system. So they started making these exploitation movies meant to be exported to the rest of the country. Uh, or the rest of the world. And when you talk about exploitation, there's several dozen films that come up and get mentioned uh, as being, you know, the biggest uh, of this crop. But when you talk about these films, you're really generally only talking about three people. Uh, almost everything from exploitation came from one of three people. You've got the, the creme de la creme. You've got George Miller. Mm-hmm. And George Miller, of course, did the, you know, Mad Max movies. You've got Brian Trenchard Smith, who uh, directed a whole bunch of crazy Australian films. And then you've got Everett DeRoche, a screenwriter who would go on to write pretty much everything that those two didn't direct. And Brian Trenchard Smith did at least one of Everett's films. Uh, He wrote all of these really great, crazy genre films that are unlike, they always play to a very specific genre. They always are very much steeped in the subgenre of uh, 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 of whatever is popular at the moment, but they're never knockoff films. There, he always has a fresh angle, and all of his movies are so crazy and original. When you pitch them to people, they can't actually believe you're pitching a real movie, <laughs> and. 
And he and the thing is, is on top of that, he was a very, very talented screenwriter who not only knew how to write a really entertaining film, but filled it with very real, accessible, memorable characters. And he's his character work is so good and so lean. And it makes all of these crazy movies work. And I just am I, I uh, the, the movie Not Quite Hollywood went off like an atom bomb here in Austin. Uh, so many of us had seen so many of these films over the years and didn't realize it was all part of a movement. And when that movie premiered at Fantastic Fest, uh, all of a sudden, a bunch of us started having viewing parties where we would get together and fill in the gaps, where we would have uh, uh, Aussie nights, where we'd watch three or four Australian uh, exploitation films in a row. And uh, so we went through this period of like a year and a half of just watching everything that had come out of Australia. And time and again, my favorite movies, I would look at the written by credit and they were by Everett DeRoche. And so I just fell madly in love with his work and started tracking it down, a lot of which is not easy to find. There are certain of his films that I can't find here in the States at all, and I've been trying for years. Oh, I was only able to track most of them down by literally going to Mark Hartley's house. Mark Hartley directed Not Quite Hollywood, and I literally had to get them off him because some of them were so hard to track down. So we should, for the those who are also uninitiated, Not Quite Hollywood is an incredible documentary about uh, exploitation cinema, which has in some ways renewed its reputation globally it played festivals all over the world um but has it has it led to the re-releases or reappreciation of any of these films um either in australia or in the u.s you know is there a label that said great we're going to stop putting these out on dvd and showing them the love that they deserve Oh, yeah. No, in the States, someone actually put out a not quite Hollywood DVD set, which was literally a box set of a whole bunch of exploitation that was mentioned in not quite Hollywood. Mm, yeah. Um, right. um, Umbrella in Australia has released a bunch of, of sets with uh, like six films a piece in, in each. And that was how I saw quite a lot, or, you know, caught up on quite a lot of them. And it, it's important to note that until not quite Hollywood came along, even most people in Australia didn't know about exploitation, didn't know about Everett DeRoche. It was when Quentin Tarantino comes to Australia and all the reporters are like, oh, you know, what's your favourite Australian film? And he starts talking about Brian Trenchard-Smith, about John Jarrett, about Everett DeRoche. And, you know, in Not Quite Hollywood, Tarantino says... Almost everything that Everett DeRoche wrote is one of my favourite films. And so even in Australia, we'd forgotten this history because it hadn't been written down, there had been no documentaries, there were no textbooks. We'd forgotten it. And it, so it was only... Like, it's within the last 10 years that anyone who didn't grow up on those films of a specific age, anyone born, you know, after 1980, you had almost no idea, you know, about these films until this resurgence happened about 10 years ago. And so... And I, and I find it interesting looking at DeRoche credits so he's you know known for uh patrick and long weekend and road games and all these films up until 1986 then there's a gap until 2003 he's still working he's still making a ton of television you look at his imdb he was he didn't appear to stop working but he didn't get any features off the ground until visitors in 2003 and then you had storm warning in 2007 and long weekend remake in 2008 and a film in 2009 it was like generationally you know all the people who had grown up on his films wanted to make them and remake them and work with him i actually talked to his got in contact with his family because 
I, uh, I, you know, in addition to, to meeting Everett, I actually went to uni with his daughter, Bree, and we used to carpool together. And so I got in touch to ask about that gap. And they said he was still writing stuff. He was still writing spec scripts and trying to trying to sell them. But for some reason, that eighty six to early two thousands gap, there was there was very little getting made, and so he couldn't get. You know, he wasn't just twiddling his thumbs. He was still writing during that period. Well, his movies in eighty six, in particular, are his craziest films, mm-hmm. and I could see why. In the way, since Ozploitation had kind of dried up, and America had caught on to what was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and those films reception and then of course 86 and 87 were the death of genre in the 80s i could see why it would be very hard for someone like deroche to get his his specs picked up yeah yeah and yeah you can definitely definitely see that in you know the the, the tide is changing you know we certainly didn't have any exploitation films made in the 90s and you know those those three films in 86 link and wind rider and frog dreaming frog dreaming by the way was a legendary film when i was because i grew up near the quarry where it was you know it's also known as the quest or the go kids depending on which territory you're in but um, the quest is how i grew up the quest right yeah well the quarry where they filmed that i grew up around the corner from that and and we used to talk about it we thought it was real we thought there was a monster living there i nearly my family nearly moved to a house (laughs) just around the corner from it i thought frog dreaming was a film made for like my school or something you know it was that personal (laughs) like a Uh, like a public safety announcement for your school pretty much yeah we had teachers telling us it was real because it was so close to where we we went to school it was uh so yeah that was that was a huge film of my childhood yeah it's uh i had a connection with that film as well because i'm uh i have odd connections to that film in a very weird way as you know i actually wrote a fantasy novel set in the outback that deals with aboriginal mythology Mm -hmm. but henry thomas was born and raised in san antonio where i was born and raised and he was someone i just ran into growing up you just go out to clubs or bars or whatever, and he was there and ran into him all the time. And, of course, two of my best friends growing up, like such best friends that when I ran away from home, I went to their house. I used to go to church with these guys every weekend. Their uncle is Brian Trenchard Smith. Right. And so this was such a weird connection for me growing up. And, of course, it was a very hard movie to find for a long time. You could only watch it on, like, VHS over here. But it's such a weird structurally film. You know, uh, it's a a film that is presented as a horror movie that is actually a coming-of-age story that then becomes a fantasy film. Hmm. And it works. And it's really fantastic. Absolutely. Uh, and, and sorry, it's, it's worth mentioning that I don't because I don't think we've mentioned it until now. Everett DeRoche was American. He was born in Maine. He didn't move to Australia until he was 22. And so it, it's this disconcerting thing of watching a film or a series of films from an outsider who gets us in a way that we don't get ourselves. You know, we needed this outside eye in the same way. Wake in fright was very much an Englishman's view of how horrible Australia is. All of DeRoche's films are sort of his critique on Australian culture. And I think it works. I think, you know, you kind of need that outsider perspective to understand yourself. But uh, that's one of the things I I enjoy about his films and and why I'm easy to forgive the fact that Road Games stars two Americans, even though it's an Australian film. You know, so many of his films have, uh, have 
stars imported. It's such a good film, though. It's mm. so great. It's Rear Window in a Truck, and yes. it's fantastic. I'm a huge <laughs> fan of Razorback, which Razorback is the one we're mm. watching Razorback. It's hard to believe that Amer- an American wrote that because it feels like such an Australian film. Yeah, And that's actually my favorite of his films, hands down. I'm a huge fan of Razorback. Uh, I, I am of the opinion that there are only three movies that ever truly ripped off Jaws and made something of their own of it. And, of course, it's Alien, The Car, and Razorback. That, that's one of the weird things about DeRoche. DeRoche never went back to the same well for ideas, except when it came to Pissed Off Nature. He made three Pissed Off Nature movies, mm-hmm. but all three of them are radically different. Long Weekend is a weird movie about the Earth gone mad. And then you have Razorback, which is very much Jaws with a hallucinatory mushroom sequence in the middle and is such a weird, crazy little movie of its own. And then you have Link, which is just bonkers. Mm. Let's put Elizabeth Shue in a mansion with a cigar-smoking, suit-wearing, psychotic orangutan who will kill everybody by the end of the movie. Like, you pitch that, and I'm telling you, Sophie doesn't believe, she still doesn't believe that this guy exists (laughs) and that these movies are real. My incredulity is just transmitting to the airwaves i have manga eyes right now and not just because of the kind of okja connection i'm just like for real elizabeth shu made another film oh elizabeth shu made a movie with a cigar smoking suit wearing psychopath monkey who is the villain of the movie well if he was the if he was the hero i would have believed it obviously but he's the villain i I don't believe it it's uh, it's kind of bonkers. Uh, and then uh, um, Patrick is probably one of his most well-known mm. of, of the Ausploitation. And I honestly, I think it's one of his weakest. Oh, really? Like it's a, yeah, it's a really good idea. And it's a great twist on the psychic horror that was happening at the time. But I think something like Harlequin is significantly better. Uh, Harlequin has to be mentioned not only because it's I think it holds up as a a a brilliant crazy movie but it's that epic movie that almost was like I believe that DeRoche would be a household name for other writers if Harlequin hadn't have had both of its major cast members drop out at the last minute because Harlequin for those of you that don't know it's a movie that is built around a true event that happened in Australia where the Prime Minister went out swimming and never came back. He's still out there. Harold Holt is still out there, I'm telling you. But yeah, go on. Yeah, and it's something that, as Americans, we're like, that can't happen. It's not real, (laughs) right? It's like, no, this really happened. And so it's this weird political story about this guy who is positioning himself to become the next Prime Minister because of this void that's been opened, and his son is dying of a terminal disease and then this guy who may or may not be magical shows up to help cure the sun and it's kind of a Rasputin story Mm, but the original cast for it was this evil kind of overlord behind the scenes was supposed to be played by Orson Welles and oh yeah and then the weird Harlequin character the primary character was supposed to be David Bowie so I can see that I can see that there is this alternate universe in which we have an Everett DeRoche movie starring Orson Welles and David Bowie that everybody knows because 
It's, have you seen that crazy David Bowie movie where he cures the kid of cancer? And the thing is, is that without the the costuming for the Harlequin, Mm. clearly was made for Bowie. It so looks like Bowie of the late 70s, early 80s that it's not even funny. Absolutely. Um, But by the way, if Bowie had done that film, there's no way we get Labyrinth. So that yeah, if you, if, you, if you're a labyrinth fan, then uh, then that could, that could be a good. <laughs> well, labyrinth news happened a few years later. Like maybe he wouldn't have done labyrinth after doing Harlequin, mm. but damn it, his Harlequin would have been so good. But that movie would have yeah. That Harlequin is my second favorite DeRoche movie. Uh, I got to see a 35 millimeter print of that a few years ago, and it just melted my brain. <laughs> and I've watched it about a dozen times since. It's such a wonderfully bizarre film. That just, it's pure DeRoche. Like, it's all these great characters with a very crazy premise, and you're invested the whole time, no matter how weird it gets. Like, that's what he excels at, is he pitches you this premise in the opening act of the movie, and you're like, this is nuts, there's no way this is going to work. And then by the end, you're like, that was amazing, that was so much fun, I enjoyed that. And it, it always lands. And and one of the other things I think he does really, really well is almost all of his movies are everyman characters. He never really wrote characters that were really great at things. They were good maybe at one thing, but they were otherwise very dim-witted or dull or average. Mm. So, like, one of the weirder characters that he wrote was for the quest, Frog Dreaming, which we were just talking about, in which Henry Thomas is this brilliant little inventor kid who's always inventing all this crazy stuff, but he's a, he's a fool. Like, he's always getting himself into trouble and ultimately almost gets himself killed in the film mm. as a result of his stupidity and his brazenness, because that's how DeRoche worked. Like, if you were really good at something, you were really, really bad at, at everything else. And uh, otherwise, you have characters like from road games, where you have these two very normal people trying to solve a murder, and you're always deep into it and he had this great way of just making you fall in love with characters with a single exchange of dialogue where somebody would say something just right to where you'd be like i love that dude that dude's awesome and then that dude pays off later in the movie and he was such a craftsman absolutely and i think that's actually something that you know people always talk about the inspiration he and and director richard franklin who he worked with a few times took from Hitchcock because you can see Psycho in Patrick you can see the birds in Long Weekend you can see obviously Rear Window in in Road Games but I I think it's that every man in an amazing situation and and making them affable and making you like them so instantly and that's the key thing he took from Hitchcock's films which is that ordinary person in extraordinary situation and making you buy into it within seconds. Well, and that's Link, too. Link is pure Hitchcock. It's just the murderer is an orangutan. Um, (laughs) Which, by the way, as silly as that sounds, that's actually also Edgar Allan Poe, you know, Murder of the Rue Morgue. And I found that kind of interesting is it's Murder of the Rue Morgue by way of Hitchcock as told through 80s slasher movies. (laughs) And I cannot believe that's a film that really exists and that it stars Elizabeth Shue and Terrence Stamp. But it's there, it exists, and it's a very, very real thing. And God bless you, Everett DeRoche, for coming up with it. Wow, well, I feel really honoured to have been uh, included at this meeting of the Everett DeRoche fan club. I am definitely going to look out for these films, I think especially for Link, just Mm. for the Elizabeth Shue. Well, the Elizabeth Shue, Terrence Stamp crossover um what a cinematic universe 
that sounds like. <laughs> well, if you're that's that's the crazy one to watch. If you want to watch one that I swear to God, there are two other movies on this list that I give no suck guarantees to, and they are Road Games and Razorback. All right. Definitely sit down and watch Stacy Keach and uh, Jamie Lee uh, Curtis. It, and Jamie Lee Curtis are fantastic in Road Games, mm-hmm. and then Razorback is probably the greatest shot Australian genre film of all time. Like, (laughs) I think the cinematography in that trumps everything that George Miller did in the Mad Max movies. Like, there's a... There is a hallucinatory sequence in the middle of that movie that is done with matte paintings that is just glorious. And you can't believe you're watching a pissed off nature movie. Like, it's just like, (sighs) what is going on here? Like, it is just like they said, we're going to make Jaws. And they went all out and just made a crazy movie where a large boar kills people. But by God, is it a well, beautifully shot movie? It really is. Awesome. Cargill, thank you so much for joining us and for, uh, you know, taking us into the films of the great screenwriter Everett DeRoche. Oh, guys, thank you for having me back. This has been such a pleasure. It was, I, I didn't realize that you only had guests on once. So I was like, oh, man, I guess they didn't do that great a job last time. They never had me back. So, <laughs> no, so it's, a great, it's a great honor to have been invited back to Hell is for Hyphenates twice. So thank you guys so much for having me. The honor is all ours. Thank you. And we'll see the rest of you next month. (laughs) 